as uh, we kickstart your Thursday afternoon with Thursday Finance. That means Stephen Pritchard joining us. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Mark. We've got a big afternoon on the way. What have you got for us coming up? Um, we're going to go through the uh, commodities and currencies movements in a minute. Then we've got Henry Jennings from Marcus today talking about various things that's happened on the market. And then we've got Mandy Barton from Centrelink to talk about your uh, residence and various uh, requirements in respect to that. And you can also give us a call anytime you like on 49216216, actually after Henry's spoken, you can give us a call. <laughs> well, we've got to get Henry in first. Yeah, we don't want someone talking to Henry. We'll never get them off the phone. No, it won't happen. And of course, Mandy, always a great listen when we have her on a little bit later this afternoon. Stephen, time to have a look at those all-important currency and commodity figures. What have you got for us? Uh, we've got a lot of things here, Mark. Um, during the week, the gold price was up 1.8% to $1,691 an ounce. Uh, the copper price was up 1.3% to $7,533 an ounce. And the uh, Brent crude oil price was up 3.14% to $70.16 a barrel. Good to see I've got my stocks of those up then. I'm doing see, okay this week. See you buying commodities. <laughs> didn't come out. Um, the uh, Australian dollar was up uh, uh, 0.7% against the US dollar. Um, so we're now, our now dollars now buying 74.32 US cents for every $1 you've got. It's right if you're going over to the US or somewhere that uses the US country. Um, pretty steer against the, uh, the British pound. Uh, one Australian dollar buys 57p. And against the euro, we're down 2% against the euro, and one Australian dollar now buys 66 euro cents. So in the equities markets, there's a fair bit of red ink around the world again today. Oh, that's not good. Today in Australia again, um, we were down 2.25% on the week to 5,778 points. It was down again this morning, actually. So we're getting further and further away from the magical 6,000. That's 6,000. You really want that to happen. Further away. away We're only 50 points away from it three weeks ago. Um, And the S&P, the S&P, we're down 1.5% to 2,357. Now, the US market's been falling on um, concerns that... uh, President Trump's not going to get through his tax changes, so that's interesting. And the um, UK market was up 1.5% on 7,503, and the Hang Seng Index was up uh, just on 1% to 25,293. Um, some local stocks um, that local people have interest in, uh, BHP was up 1.3% on the week to $23.92. Uh, Commonwealth Bank was down 2.3% to $20.17. Um, NIB Health Funds was down 13% to $5.49. NIB's had a particularly good increase in price this year, so um, you know, it's come back a little bit. People are still well ahead on that usually. Um, uh, the local fuel price was down on one percent to a dollar eighteen point seven cents a litre, and the Sydney fuel price was down nine percent to a dollar eighteen. <laughs> so the, the fuel prices are pretty much in alignment. And the diesel price in Newcastle was down nine percent to a dollar nineteen, and in Sydney was down nine percent also to a dollar twenty. So the fuel prices, both diesel and unleaded, are pretty much aligned between Sydney and Newcastle. Which is which is a good thing. It's a good thing, as far as we're concerned. Um, and we've got the long weekend coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh, we, we go, we're going to run a book on what happens the, on the week before. Let, let's see. Um, the prices will go up, we'll complain about it, and then afterwards they'll normalise. They'll go down. School holidays must be coming up again soon, too. Uh, yes, very much so. Yeah, so They're always on holidays, that. though, aren't they? My son mentioned that this morning yeah, at some stage. 
And joining us now, as always, for the program, Henry Jennings. He is the senior commentator with the Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. Good afternoon, Henry. Good afternoon. How are we this afternoon? Uh, we're fine, Henry. I, I saw you on the ABC during the week. Very impressive. Very oh, impressive. thank you, Stephen. Very impressive. I thought, oh, that's the man who's on our radio show. Yeah, well, every now and then they, they wheel out the big guns, and that's then right. when they can't arrive, I get me. Oh, I thought you were the big guns. <laughs> no, no, so, I think I'm the standard. So what's happened to the big guns at Officeworks? I thought that was going to be a good float, and now we're saying that we're not floating it because of concerns over Amazon. Well, I'm not sure it's just the concerns over Amazon. I think the whole retail sector has concerns over Amazon, and the big problem for Officeworks is that West Farmers have a value in mind of, uh, say, $1.5 billion. Um, but unfortunately, the market has a value of considerably less for the business. Um, the multiples on retailers have been falling recently, um, and the multiple that uh, West Farmers wants is not going to be high enough. So rather than just sell it for the sake of it, um, the uh, the West Farmers guys have decided to keep it within the fold, which, you know, it's fair enough. It's, um, it's a pretty successful business. And, you know, to be honest, when you look at uh, the possible disruption that Amazon will bring to Officeworks, yes, I'm sure there will be some. But uh, Officeworks are a relatively slick, um, yeah, they're, they're a very slick retail store now, very much serving small business rather than just, um, you know, files and, and stationary needs for kids. Oh, and that, that, that's right. And the other thing is, you, you know, we needed a new notebook yesterday, so we, I just sent one of the one of the guys up to uh, Officeworks to, to to pick up the notebook. You're not going to be able to do that with Amazon. No, no, and that, that's well, in theory, you're not. Although, if you're an Amazon Prime member. Um, and uh, that does come to Australia. They're talking two to three hours of delivery, so uh, maybe uh, you will be able to do it same day, but it certainly won't be as instant as Officeworks. But, uh, you know, Officeworks has morphed into a very much a small business supplier mm -hmm. um, and also, I, I guess, a go-to place for technology, as you've just witnessed. Uh, anyhow, um, Quint Quintus shares, they're suspended, Ooh. and now Slater and Gordon's going to... Look at a class action, I suppose Slater and Gordon needs to get some more fees in somehow. <laughs> yeah, well, Slater and Gordon's got lots of lawyers, and I'm not sure they're doing too much at the moment at times. Um, so uh, they've got a few things happening in the UK. They've also um, they've launched an action against uh, Watchstone, who they bought the Quindell business off in 2015, which has proved to be such a disaster. Um, they've uh, referred the matter to the Serious Fraud Office, so that's, that's going to be some fun and games happening there. And also, of course, Quintus, which is still suspended, um, has not had a particularly good time recently, and it's it's in one of these what they call strategic reviews. Um, strategic reviews is never a good um, thing to pop up in uh, in a statement from uh, from a CEO. Um, it usually means they're going to write off a lot of money, and things are looking pretty bleak. It's a bit like that word challenging, which pops up in uh, in statements as well. Challenging environment, mm -hmm. challenging conditions. So um, Quintus have got their problems um, without doubt. So. Um, We'll see whether the Sandalwood Company, um, how it goes. But the stock has slumped. It, uh, it's in a trading hold at the moment, 29.5 cents, uh, which is an awful, awful long way down. And shareholders will undoubtedly be pretty concerned, uh, especially as the board didn't seem to know that they'd lost uh, one of their big contracts with a, uh, with a Nestle subsidiary in Europe um, for Sandalwood. So, you know, you would imagine the board would know things like that, but uh, apparently not so clearly communication, not one of their strong points. Must have something to do with these companies with made-up names that start with Q. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have nailed it there, Stephen. I think you've got, you're on to something. Yeah, so anyhow... Does that mean Qantas has in a, in a, got a problem? 
Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> They've got a problem with cream pies or something, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> they have. I think yeah. Joyce has anyway. Yeah. And so Elliot Associates, they're, they're increasing their pressure on BHP? Yeah, I mean, you've got to say, I mean, it's, um, the, these guys are dogged. Um, they did spend two years uh, agitating for change at Samsung, so they're not going to go away quickly. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, they're just another shareholder. Okay, they're a big shareholder, but still, um, they will need to get other shareholders to fall into line to uh, to force any change at BHP. Uh, BHP have uh, sort of engaged to some extent with the, uh, the guys at Elliott Advisors, which is a, an aggressive activist hedge fund out of the U.S. run by a guy who's a billionaire called Paul Singer. Um, they're agitating for um, some changes to the dual-listed structure, um, and they're also agitating mainly now for um, some action on the oil division. Now, BHP have even admitted, Andrew McKenzie admitted, that the uh, $20 billion U.S. that they paid for Petrohawk may have been a bit of an error. And they've written down a lot of that. And uh, one of the things that Singer and Elliott advisors want BHP to do is to float off that oil division um, so they can maximise returns for shareholders. Of course, um, BHP um, not that keen to do that at the moment, but um, I guess they've got to do something or say something that they're going to change their name. And they've launched a nice marketing campaign, but um, I'm not sure that's enough. And this, this will probably run and run for some time, I would imagine. Robert Holmes, of court. Yeah. He went on for years. And yeah. um, supermarket price wars. So I went into, went into uh, my son was having his 18th birthday and we went in to get some water. Yeah. And, and they had water. all these. Yeah, yeah, they, well, because there was a mixture of underage and I only supplied uh-huh. water and soft drink. Anyhow, of course you did. Yeah, I did. Spend <laughs> big on this occasion, sure Stephen. Yeah. Well, this is the point. I mean, Woolworths, I had, Woolworths had these cases of water. Uh, 24 bottles at $6, and I thought, how can, how can they possibly be doing that? And now I see Coca-Cola Amatools complaining that that that, um, that uh, their supermarket price wars are crunching their margins on their bottled water. Yeah, so, it's, uh, it's, 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 poor old Coke's had a bit of a tough time, I guess. They've had a, a big sort of discount war in the supermarkets with, uh, with Pepsi and other uh, beverages. The sugary drinks are a bit on the nose at the moment, and... You know, their one sort of uh, strategy was fighting back in, in bottled water, and as you rightly point out, it's so cheap. Um, you know, so it's pretty hard to make a lot of money on six dollars for twenty-four bottles of, uh, of water. So uh, certainly, Coke have their issues at the moment, and again, strategic reviews. Yeah, well, I thought they must have made a mistake and left the one off the front of it. <laughs> no, no, I think unfortunately. No, no, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's uh, they are cheap. Yes. So, and and then QuickBooks, which is the uh, insurance brand, now claims that they're going to win market share from Zero and MYAB. Yeah, I saw this this morning in the in the Fin Review. Um, so that they're in town at the moment talking their book, and um, they're a long way behind uh, Zero and MYOB here. But of course, they are the kind of the behemoth in the US. So, I, I guess um, Zero and MYOB want to push into that US market and maybe uh, Intuit and the QuickBooks people are just reminding um, <laughs> Zero that um, it works both ways. Um, you know, you come over here and take our clients, we'll come over there and take your clients. So um, there may be a bit of that involved, but um, certainly um, not, um, it's, it's early days yet, so I'll wait and see. But I mean, th- these products tend to be very sticky, as you know, with uh, with your own business mm-hmm. financial planning and accounting. Uh, once you uh, once you adopt the system, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty hard, or you, you don't really want to 
changing. Just for the sake of a few dollars, there's a lot of aggravation involved. Oh, yeah, they say these conversion programs, but they never work properly. No. You're right, there's a huge amount of aggravation. Oh, there's a huge amount. You may save a few dollars, but the actual time and effort you spend and, uh, and risks you take in terms of uh, mm-hmm. downtime mm-hmm. is, is far, uh, far in excess. Well, we're talking about the Glomesh funds made by Ariton, actually. So Ariton's, Ariton's share price has dropped to a 20-year low, Henry. Um, it has. Oriton, I have to say, have never really recovered, um, I guess, from the, uh, the loss of the, um, the Ralph Lauren yep. uh, business and um, the stock price that they're really struggling at the moment. They've had disappointing sales. Um, that may be seasonal. That may be because of the, the disappointing weather we had in, uh, in March and April. But certainly uh, it's not been much fun for Oriton. They're having problems with their Gap stores. Um, you know, that, the Gap really isn't uh, the brand at the moment. It's a little old and tired. Uh, the Brook Brothers business uh, they, they also got is not exactly um, flourishing in this country. It's, um, you know, it's very much a U.S. kind of thing, um, and it really has struggled to replace Ralph Lauren, and the stock has suffered you know, ever since. Um, they've got a new man at the helm who's one of the biggest shareholders, but um, really and truly they are uh, struggling with those gap in their outlet stores as well. So not good news for Oriton and just another retailer um, having some woes at the moment. Mm-hmm. And Dulux, Dulux uh, is the paint manufacturer amongst other things. Claims, yes, amongst, yeah. Claims that the home renovation market will insulate them against any slowdown in the Australian housing market. Well, they can hope, can't they? They can um, hope. Uh, the, the stock has done pretty well yep. um, this year. Um, it, it's you know it's risen from around six bucks. It's back up to around six seventy. So it's had a, a pretty good performance this year. It does seem to have topped out a lot of these building stocks locally. Seem to have topped out. CSR was another one that was warning about the uh, the housing slowdown. Of course, Dulux. Um, I guess if if you can't move, then you can always redecorate. But um, you know they're, they're they're pinning a lot of hopes on that, and there's obviously some price competition there. But um, you know they were pretty optimistic about the outlook, but unfortunately the market wasn't quite as optimistic and, and took the the chance, I guess, to take some profits off the table after the run they've had. They uh, so a little bit uh, a little bit weaker in the last few days for Dulux. And um, TPG, um, there's now talk that the, their takeover for Fairfax might not have to pass some national interest test to, to make sure they keep printing the Sydney Morning Herald. Well, hold the phone, Stephen, because this morning, this morning. we've had another bid for Fairfax. Oh. oh. Who would believe that there are two consortia or, uh, or two private equity mobs out there that want to buy Fairfax? We've had another bid from a US-based... Uh, they're in San Francisco, a company called Hellman and Friedman. Oh, they're back. Uh, uh, they're back. They are back. So they have bid this morning for Fairfax, and now we've got a two-way bidding war. These are This is back to the 80s. This yes. is great stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's um, the, the board has now decided that, uh, in their infinite wisdom, that both bids should uh, enjoy due diligence, and they should both sort of um, be allowed to have a little look at the books. Uh, the Hellman bid is between 122 and a half on 125 cents, and the TPG bid is at 120. Um, the TPG guys were asked to appear in front of a Senate committee on the future of journalism, uh, and they said, "Yeah, no, you know what? We haven't even got a, an indicative. You know, we haven't even got board approval to take over Fairfax. So it is a little premature to be uh, appearing in front of Senate committees talking about journalism in Australia. So there's a long way to go in this one. I suspect um, someone will bid um, rounded up to 130." Uh, they'll get the board approval and then the deal will be done. Um, but at the 
moment. I mean, we've got a sea of red today, and Fairfax is one of the few stocks that's up. It's up uh, 6.5% today. That's excellent. <laughs> and so if you want to get Henry's, uh, Henry's views... Yes, yeah, um, you can. You can, you can go on to uh, marcustoday.com.au. You can sign up for a, a two-week free trial, and, and you might even get a tax deduction coming into the end you of tax year. You will definitely get a tax deduction if you subscribe up and pay before the 30th of June. So well, you've, there got, you go. you've got five weeks left, probably. You've got five uh, weeks. And don't yeah. forget, you can hear Henry again here with us next week. Or, okay. or, of course, we can keep watching the ABC because he does appear there every now and then. When minute. someone else doesn't show up, yeah. we're told. When, when the big guns don't turn up, they, they have to fall back to me. I thought Henry, you were put, the big guns. Just put anyway. something in their water and you'll get more gigs, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Okay. Stephen, our special guest for this afternoon has made her way into the building. She's made her way in the building and found her way upstairs to us and passed the Coke machine without opening it <laughs> and with a big smile on your face as well she was only going to get a bottle of water out of it anyhow <laughs> of course so Andy so we're here yes. so we're going to talk about um, people's homes and vacancies and what happens there today okay so so um, so so I mean this this is this is quite common a customer you know settling customer um, vacates their home to to go on a holiday or to do some study maybe in another city or how, how, what happens to that they um, home then Okay, so when a person vacates their home temporarily, our legislation allows for that home to be an exempt asset for up to 12 months for temporary vacations. So unless a person um, has a definite intention to not return to their property, all those vacations will be regarded temporary. And it basically just gives them the option of, you know, the grey nomads picking up and travelling around Australia for six, nine months, coming home, and during that time they are still classified as homeowners and their home continues to be exempt under our legislation for that 12-month absence. Okay, and then what about if they, they say they decide to do a... a they, they, they need to go and do a study course and let's say, you know, they live in Newcastle and in Sydney and they go down there for 12 months, what happens then? Well, they would still be eligible for that 12-month vacation under the asset test, so we wouldn't count the house as an asset. Whilst a person is temporarily absent from their home, still classified as a homeowner, it means they don't qualify for rent assistance though. So if they do have to pay rent to live mm -hmm. somewhere else, they can't apply for rent assistance because we are giving them the benefit of the home still being classified as their principal home and exempt under the asset test. And so what happens if, if, if we go back to the grey nomads, they travel up to, uh, there seems to be, I'm told, this mass exodus from Victoria to Queensland at this time of the year. So they, so they, leave, they leave their house in Victoria and go up to Queensland for six months and then come back to Victoria. Is there any time limit between how long they can go up to, up to Queensland again? Yeah, the legislation looks at if a person establishes a pattern of continually vacating their home and what's the length of time they're coming home for. So what, what's their intention really? So if someone's, you know, off for six months and comes home for a 12 months and then goes for another trip, um, you know, that generally would be reviewed as a holiday. But if someone was popping home for three or four weeks and then taking off again, we would certainly look at that and, and see, you know, is this person legitimately returning home um, or are they just coming home for a very short period to try and establish a new 12-month vacation. Okay. Okay, we might just take the call. Absolutely. We've got uh, John on the line. Now, John, you've got a question about uh, tax deductions and small businesses. You're on with Stephen Pritchard, John. Hi, John. Oh, good morning, uh, Stephen. How are you going? Good, good, John. Good, good, good. Um, my question, Stephen, uh, I have a very uh, modest um, 
business out in Edgeworth and I'm a little confused by the uh, latest legislation changes in regard to immediate deductibility of assets uh, less than $20,000. Yeah, there hasn't been any legislation changes on that. Oh, it's, I suppose in the budget? Is that what we... It was, ju- it, was ju- it, was just, it was just rolled over, just extended. I, I, that's, that's where I'm a little confused because I, I believe the um, the total uh, income threshold, company turnover threshold, on that move from up from two million to ten million. Um, I, I'm not sure whether that's that's a different small business test. There's a range of small business tests that, that apply for different things. I'd have to actually go and have a look at what the small business test for the immediate deductibility was. But you know, if you if, you, if, you, if you're getting up to that type of turnover, it's really not a small business. No, but that, that's what was sort of interesting to me because obviously I, I thought it had been deliberately increased from two million up to ten million to allow it has, greater. It has, it has for certain things, but I don't know whether that test has moved up for for this. I see, I see. Okay. I, I do, I do have one other question. Yeah. yeah. The um, when it comes to um, the uh, ongoing uh, the deductibility of uh, assets, um, uh, depreciation on assets with when you purchase an investment property. Yep. That um, does that mean that. Um, building additions and the things that were previously deductible as um, building additions and when you'd have a um, one of the... Uh, no, no, no. What, uh, what it means, if you buy the investment property and it's in the investment property, it's got a dishwasher and a stove, for example. Previously, you used to separate those out of the purchase price and, and, and depreciate those separately. Um, now you can no longer do that. They're all just counted as the capital asset when you buy the place. Is that... Um, does that mean all of those um, quantity surveyor reports are no longer be valid? No, it depends what the quantity surveyor reports are for. It doesn't change the fact on construction costs. We're talking about depreciation items, not, not construction costs right off. I see. Lovely. That's exactly what I needed to know. Thanks okay. very much, Stephen. Thanks. And Richard, you've got a question about gold, gold, gold. <laughs> you know, it's a, a few months ago you uh, you mentioned that it was a gold company is actually starting to pay dividends in bullion instead of money and that uh, that appeals to me but I was driving along at the time and I, I didn't catch the name could you uh, uh, it's please resolute, tell me that name again it's resolute resources Resolute. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what they do is they effectively um, deposit the, the dividend in a in a in a gold account at the Perth Mint. Okay. Well, okay. well that sounds all right. I said okay. something different. Yeah, yeah. It's just, quirky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know a friend who's taken it up, um, but, you know, it's just a, an opportunity there to acquire some gold bullion if you want. Mm, can be horses for courses. Well, we better bring our special guest back in, Mandy, Mandy Barton back. from Centrelink. So, 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 so when, when, they, when the people go away, so they go to study for a year in Sydney, Fags, for example, what happens if they rent their home? What happens then? Okay, so if they rent their home, we do assess the rental income. So yep. that can have an impact on their rate of entitlement. So dependent upon, you know, how much rent they're receiving, we assess rent under the net rent rules. Mm-hmm. So we allow deductions to come off the rent. Um, generally, we're looking at like a profit and loss statement because obviously for a newly rented property, we wouldn't have a tax return. So we would initially um, have an interim assessment we yep. used and then we would be asking them for a profit and loss statement should, to show what that net rent is. Okay, so... When you mean things come off, you you want the rent less the less the um, 
the, the council rates and the, yes. and the insurance and the mortgage payments. Mortgage interest. Mortgage interest. Yes. And once again, we get back to that thing that, that the mortgage land has to be actually on the property itself. Yes, yes. that's right. Yeah, and then, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's not too bad, really. So, uh, no. yeah. So that's reasonably fair. Hmm. So then the other thing that's which, which actually had... Um, we actually had Mark Longworth on talking about this from a real estate point of view not so long ago, mm-hmm. about people downsizing um, and selling their houses. And downsizing seems to be this term that really doesn't mean downsizing. Actually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it means actually getting a bigger place. Yeah, so more modern and newer, which sometimes can cost a little bit more than what they're selling for. Yeah, so how does all this... So how does... How does this all work from a Centrelink point of view? So when a, when a customer who's on a Centrelink payment sells their home, mm-hmm. if they have an intention to buy another home, we basically um, apply a special test to those sale proceeds that they receive from the first home that they're going to purchase the second home with. And we give them an asset test exemption on that, those sale oh, okay. proceeds um, that are to be used to purchase the new home, again, for up to 12 months. Um, so it gives people time you know, to look around, find that right house and not have that money counted as an asset. Um, but because that, um, that is money, it is a financial asset, we don't give any income test exemptions. So the proceeds are deemed to be earning interest. Okay, so if they if they say for example they sell the house for for eight hundred thousand dollars, and that would normally um, reduce their pension by almost to zero, um, um, that that eight hundred thousand gets exempted from the assets test until such times as they buy a new house. Yeah. And then if it's, if the new house only costs say seven hundred the hundred thousand, then so does the hundred thousand only get included from when they buy the new house, or do we back the hundred? The amount we exempt depends on what they're um, looking to spend on the new home. So okay. if someone is prepared to spend the, the entire 800000 in that okay. example, the whole 800000 would be asset exempt oh, until okay. such time as they did purchase. And if they had some money residual left over, we would then obviously increase that asset base based on that left over. Oh, okay. So then, then if they get the interest, that just reduces the pension on the income test basis. Well, under yeah. our deeming rules, yeah, yeah, we reduce the pension oh. under the income test, yeah. Okay. So, 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 so that, that seems quite fair to me, actually. Yeah, well, I didn't, it gives I didn't people, know that kind of existed. Yeah, it gives people time to find that new house, not having to rush and, you know, pick the wrong house. So, um, yeah, it's just about being aware of what the implications of selling are. And, yes, you will generally have a reduction in your pension during that um, transition between old house and new house, but you do have the cash invested to be generating the income, which should more than cover the reduction in the pensions. And if someone wants to go and talk to you about that, they can ring the, the helpline at... Um, yes. Centrelink. Yeah. If they wanted to have a chat, they could contact our retirements line on one three two three double zero, and they can ask via that line to speak with a financial information service officer if they'd wish. Right. Okay. So then we've sold a house, and we, and and we've sold a house, and we've decided not to buy another one, and we've decided to buy move into a retirement village. What happens? What happens then? Okay, retirement villages are assessed um, as special residences under our legislation. So the way in which we assess a person um, is based on what they pay to enter a retirement village. So the entry contribution they pay um, determines whether we assess them as a homeowner or a non-homeowner. So retirement villages in New South Wales generally are on a lease arrangement. So a, purchase, a person purchases a 99-year lease. 
but based on that entry contribution or the amount paid, we will look at is this person going to be classified as a homeowner or a non-homeowner. So is that just based on the dollar amount or is there some... It is based on the dollar amount and we compare that dollar amount they pay with a figure in our policy um, known as the extra allowable amount, which is the difference between the homeowner and the non-homeowner asset threshold and it's currently $200,000. So if a person pays equal to or less than $200,000 for uh, the right to live in a retirement village, they would be classified as non-homeowners under our legislation, um, which means they are, have the higher asset test thresholds applied but the amount they have paid for that entry contribution is maintained as a non-financial asset okay. paying paying more than the 200,000 they're homeowners okay and we've got time for one more things lifestyle villages or relocated home villages are they the same thing a little bit different to retirement villages because when a person moves into a lifestyle village or a relocatable home village um, they own the dwelling but they yep. don't own the land so in that instance they would always be classified as a homeowner regardless of the purchase price because they own the dwelling but as um, they have to pay a site fee to live on that land they, they are eligible for rent assistance so in retirement villages, if they're classified as a non-homeowner, they are eligible for rent assistance for their maintenance fees. But in a retirement village, if they're considered a homeowner, there's no rent assistance. I think anyone who goes into contemplating going into these arrangements needs to give your financial services line a, a, a call to get Absolutely. To, because this appears to me quite complex. And yeah, and there's a number of different accommodations op options for people um, in retirement, so they really need to explore all those options. And just like okay. that, Stephen, we've run out of time. Mandy, some great information there as well. Thank you for joining us on Thursday Finance. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>